Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you so much, Gary. That's our announcer, Mr. Gary Owen. And as always, thank you to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com, and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Today, we welcome Joan Juliet Buck, the first American woman to be named editor of French Vogue. Her career is storied as a journalist, novelist, and actor. Now, Buck has written a memoir, The Price of Illusion, about her life and time contributing to Condé Nast magazines, including the controversial Vogue article in which she interviewed Syrian First Lady Asma al-Assad. The aftermath, she says, made her a quote-unquote scapegoat for having pursued the article, which was an assignment from her Vogue editors. In this interview, Ms. Buck is truly charming and warm, as she is most known to be. She is excited to finally have written her life story. Illusion is a page-turner, every word dripping with Buck's copyrighted personality. Here now to tell us why fashion will always be in vogue. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Our interview with Joan Juliet Buck. Joan Juliet Buck, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm curious how your career in writing began. I know uh, you are the daughter of a successful filmmaker, Jules Buck. You've had such a, a varied career. How did it start for you? Well, I suppose it started when I was 11 years old and I was cast as a wee Scots waif in a Walt Disney movie called Greyfriars Bobby. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, like all kids, I wanted to be an actress. And here I was at 11, practically starring in a film. It was me, a bunch of children, and, and a couple of dogs. And this was what I wanted to do more than anything. But my father, as a producer and as the partner of Peter O'Toole, did not want me to become an actress. So when I went to college in America, um, to Sarah Lawrence, I, of course, signed up to the theater department, and my father sent a telegram saying, you're not in college to become an actress. And I thought, oh, well, I can write, because I... You know, I wrote nice essays in class. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I can do that. And because I obeyed my father in everything, I really didn't think twice about it. Okay, I have to give this up. I'll just be a writer. So I started writing pieces, reviews for the Sarah Lawrence newspaper. And I reviewed, I reviewed theater and I reviewed movies. And very quickly, I was taken up by Glamour magazine. Um, the summer I was 19, when their, when their book critic was on maternity leave, and somehow at 19 I ended up doing the book reviews for Glamour. Oh, wow. So this felt like instant success. <laughs> uh, there's nothing like seeing your, you know, your, your byline in a real publication mm-hmm. next to an ad for oil, oil of the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> feel like a real grown-up. That's cool. And it was so so gratifying that I thought, oh, cool, this is what I'm going to do now. Wow. And that's how it started. That's wonderful. When did you decide to write your first novel? 
go from um, reviewing books I to writing been, one? I, I'd been featured editor of British Vogue when I was 23, and then I worked for Women's Wear Daily in Italy, which sounds great, but there was an awful lot of having to interview countesses about how many shoes they owned. <laughs> and this was very upsetting, and, you know, it was really demoralizing. Yeah. Especially as I was, there were sort of larger life and death issues and things about love that I wanted to write about, mm-hmm. which I certainly couldn't write about for Women's Wear Daily. So I decided at the age of 26, I had what I called my first art fit. And I decided that I was giving up journalism forever. I couldn't use whatever talent I had to write about these countesses and their damn shoes. I had to write a novel. So at 26, I quit Women's Way Daily, and I went to Los Angeles, and I tried to write my novel. But I was in Los Angeles, so guess what? It came out as a movie trip. (laughs) That's great. That's great. and then Vogue asked me to come back to London and be the features editor again. And I went back to London, and I really wanted to write that novel. But I was now writing movie scripts, so I ended up writing five movie scripts, four of them commissioned. None of them were ever made. I'm sorry. And I still wanted... Yeah, I'm sorry, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then finally... In 1979, I couldn't stand it any longer. I went off, it's always the thing about going off, I went off to a borrowed house in Switzerland out of season in this very Tony resort called Stad. But when it wasn't skiing season, it was full of poor relatives. Mm-hmm. Everyone's aunts and parents were living there. And, um, and I finally started my first novel alone in Switzerland. Wow. God was angry. <laughs> I was <laughs> that had to drive you nuts being all by yourself for that amount of time. Sorry? That had to be that had to be quite lonely being alone all that that amount of time. Did it did it uh did it make you depressed or or was it was it quite nice to escape? Oh, it was it was perfectly wonderful because for me the whole idea of writing a novel was such a huge undertaking. How did one you know, I'd failed so many times in my attempts to write this novel at that point for the last three years. And so finally, I'm alone in Switzerland in this borrowed chalet, and I didn't speak to anyone for two months. Oh, wow. And that was part of the, the crazy joy of it. You know, look at me. I'm in Switzerland. I'm alone. And I haven't talked to anyone but the lady in the co-op when I buy my head. <laughs> <laughs> Quite nice. And then fast forward all these number of years, and you've written this memoir, The Price of Illusion. What was the impetus? I find with people that decide to write about their life, there's something that they say, okay, i got to get this in a book. What made you decide to, to write your life story? It was really simple. I had gotten, um, there had been a very odd thing that happened when I was the editor-in-chief of French Vogue. Mm-hmm. And there was an even odder thing that happened when American Vogue sent me to Syria to interview the president's wife before any of the horrible carnage had started. And um, this caused such an uproar that I lost my contract with Vogue and people decided that I 
I, I, I was uh, scapegoated and I was derided for having written this thing. And the impetus behind wanting to actually sit down and write my life was, who the hell is this person who does things they don't really want to do and gets internationally blamed for it? Hmm. I wanted to figure out the roadmap that had taken me to such a situation because it didn't make sense. Um, Looking back, when when American Vogue approached you to do that, um, would you... Would you have said no, or, or did you feel you were in a position where you, you couldn't tell them that you didn't want to go on that assignment? I, looking back, I would, of course, today say no. But at that point, my identity was so bound up with Vogue, because I had been working for Vogue uh, since 1972. I'd been with Condé Nast since 1968. I thought that Vogue was part of my being. It was part of my <laughs> everything. Mm-hmm. And But then I thought, oh, uh, if they're sending me there, they must know what they're doing because these are, you know, this is my family. This is my home. Mm-hmm. And they must have a very good reason for wanting this. But there's probably something really good about this. So off I went. Yes. And trustingly. Trustingly. And... Um... What excited you about that assignment? I mean, was there, did you have any interest? Uh, simply, the, the, the thing that excited me, I didn't want to go originally. I did not want to go at all. But it was explained to me they didn't want a political piece. They wanted something about the First Lady's relationship with the antiquities in Syria. Mm. And one of the great joys of my life has been the ancient world. Uh, I've been obsessed with Greece and Rome forever. Uh, every time I write for tra- I write for Traveler. It's about the museums. It's about the antiquities. Um, it's about ancient Rome or ancient Istanbul. So I thought that I would be able to see Palmyra, mm-hmm. the ruins of Palmyra, and of course now the entire country is in ruins. Yes. But that was the, the hook was we want you to write about the museums and the antiquities. And it was a clever hook, because that those were the things I loved. Those were the things I loved, I understood. And it was a riskier assignment than uh, than you knew at the time. So that's, that's a really interesting story. Before we, we only have a few minutes here left, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the world that you found yourself steeped in for, for uh, seven years as the editor of French Vogue, the uh, the fashion world. And you've written several pieces for InStyle about your fashion sense. And and I'm just curious, what defines fashion for you? What is fashion? Such a broad right. term. The broadest term of fashion is that which everyone agrees to be interested in at a certain time. Mm-hmm. There are fashions in theater. There are, you know... Hamilton is fashionable. Yes. Um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet is the next fashionable thing. Cats is not fashionable. <laughs> Populous is not fashionable. Oh. Uh, you know, fashion is... Books are fashionable. Movies are fashionable. Um, 
Moonlight was fashionable. Yes. You know, La La Land was more questionable. <laughs> but Moonlight, everybody could agree on. Yes. Remember, I used to be a movie critic. So there are fashions in everything. And the facts of whether women are wearing what I call rhinestone-studded condom dresses or, you know, black yeah. five pyramids, all of that is secondary to what people agree to be interested at this, in at this moment. Mm-hmm. And fashion is like this crazy, mind-bending current that is that's alive. It's a real force in the world. Yeah. And it turns people's heads. It certainly does. Now, my question about fashion, I've always thought if I could sit down with somebody who's in this industry, I'd ask this question, and maybe this is a baseless question, but it seems like fashion, when, when speaking of, of clothing, is a very feminine female thing, and it and that guys can be kind of trepid to to dip their toe into, you know, having a sense of style. Um how do we get it so that men can feel it's okay to pay attention and, and oh, put effort oh, into their I, appearance? I think, it, I think it already is. I mean, uh, the New York Times has that Friday men's style thing mm-hmm. that never existed before. And I think that men are actually very interested in that. Well, okay, men are interested in women's fashion because it has to do with who they're going to go to bed with. Right. It's, it's all about making women sexually attractive fashion for men. So men are a little wary of fashion because basically I, I think it's a very, very basic thing. Oh my God, if I'm interested in fashion, I will turn myself into a sex object and that's not very masculine. Right. Because I think men always understand fashion as sex. Yes. Right? Exactly. That, that makes sense. I've always wondered about that and, that, that's great to have your insight for that. And my last question for you, I know we're jumping around here, and I want to tell everybody real quick while I'm on here with you, read the book. It's an amazing book. You've led an amazing life. Um, and I'm just curious because you it's have... It's also a funny book. Yeah, it is. It's very... It's amusing. It's, 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 it's very funny, and it's very enlightening, and, and it's just a wonderful, very fast read. Um, I'm curious what your advice... Oh, Sorry. But yes, big page, Turner. What your advice is to those, for someone that wants to go into journalism, into media, doing reviews, and maybe wants to end up as an editor at a big magazine like Vogue? Well, here's the thing. My question to you, are magazines thriving or dying? That was going to be a question I had for you, <laughs> believe it or not. What do you think? <laughs> What's your answer? Well, I think... I think certain magazines, like New York Magazine, which I hold up as the example of a magazine that takes on today yeah. on its own terms, New York Magazine has a, has a mission to describe the present, which is what magazines should do. Fashion magazines should describe the present for, you know, in terms of clothes. And a general interest magazine like New York should take on everything. The real question for any editor is, what's happening what is going on? And so the advice, you know, if you're curious uh, and if you 
are kind of dedicated to to explaining the world to the people around you, then it's a really good idea to go into magazines, which may end up being online things, which may end up, I think radio has become more and more important. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because nobody could have predicted it. Exactly. You're right. And But people want to listen. People want to hear. They want, you know why radio is important? It's what? the human voice. People don't talk on the telephone anymore. I'm so sick of typing to communicate with my friends. I type. You know, typing for me is work. I really think about what I'm doing when I'm writing. And having to write, well, shall we meet at this restaurant or would you rather I cooked? Is, no, I want to hear somebody's voice. Everybody has a need to hear human voices. That's what makes community. So anybody who wants to go into journalism today has to figure out what it means to communicate with other people and what you want to communicate. And, you know, the world around us needs describing more than ever. It needs defining more than ever. Esquire in the 60s told America what was going on. Um, These days, New York Magazine tells, I hope it's more than New York, what's going on. This is our job as journalists, to say what's happening actually tell the truth about right now. So, you know, my advice, I don't know, I can't say, you know, go to what this magazine and rise in the ranks because technology is changing everything so fast. So I'd say find as many different platforms, explore as many different platforms as you can and find the one that's most comfortable and that makes you happiest and stay with that one. Wonderful. Joan Juliet Buck, thank you so much. The Price of Illusion, I really, really appreciate it. Great book. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ms. Buck. I hope everyone fashionable gets your book, The Price of Illusion. And I know everyone that listens to this show is fashionable, so know they are clicking that link below on talkfor2.com to buy that book right now. That's it for us today. Thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. We talked about them at the top of the show. Stay tuned to Talk for Two on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more. Facebook and Twitter, it's at Talk for Two, just like the show. And on Instagram, it's at Talk for Two Pod. Remember to visit our mothership, talkfor2.com. You can reach out on the website or by emailing talkfor2cast at gmail.com. This is a one man operation, people. I answer you back specifically. I've been getting a lot of Facebook messages lately. Sorry if I haven't been responding to those. Those are really kind of, it's kind of hard to get to that inbox. I might actually be shutting down messaging on Facebook. I don't know, but if you guys like to engage on Facebook, I might keep it. But again, the best place to reach me is talkfor2cast at gmail.com and talkfor2.com. Signing off for Talk for Two, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.